Right. Good morning, Restoration Church. For those of you who have been with us from the beginning, you know this stage is a little different today. They, they put it up a little bit higher, which could be dangerous for me, um, if you can think back. And I hit something over here. Uh, I promise I will not fall off the ledge this time. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's a longer drop. Uh, you know, the best thing about it is when I fell the first time, everybody just kept singing like, oh yeah, who cares? So I hope if you... Good morning. Welcome to Restoration Church. My name is Pastor Kevin. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration. Uh, excited to be here with you guys today. If I haven't had the chance to uh, meet you, I hope I get the chance today. And let me just personally tell you to the picnic in the park this afternoon, let this be your personal invitation to come and join us. Uh, there's nothing fancy about it. Uh, we recommend you stop by your favorite food restaurant and pick up something to go and just come hang out. Come meet some new people. Bring your favorite picnic game or park game and just come hang out. It's, uh, it's low-key and fun. I'm hoping my wife, I don't know if she's in here, I'm hoping she'll say Taco Bell today. I don't know if she, that will work, but, um, but uh, that would be my preference. So, uh, We're excited today. We're beginning a new series called What is Worship? We're going to take the next couple of weeks and trying to understand what worship is. What, is it, what, what does it mean? Uh, why do we do it? And so I want to start out and just kind of come to an understanding of, uh, of a definition of worship. Now, the, the Bible doesn't give a formal definition of worship. Uh, but perhaps when you look at the, uh, we can start seeing what various words mean for worship, what, what worship means. The English word worship comes from two old English words. The first being worth, which means worth. And the second being Skype or, 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 or ship, which means like uh, something like shape or, or quality. We see the old English word ship in modern words like friendship and sportsmanship. That's the quality of being a friend or the quality of being a good sport. So worship is the quality of having worth or of being worthy. Worship is a gift that we give to somebody else. When we worship in the church, when we worship God with our lives, we are saying that God is worthy, that he is, he is worthy of our worship. Worship means that we declare worth and attribute worth to God. To put this in biblical terms, we praise God, we speak or sing uh, about how good and how powerful he is. The book of Revelation, which is one of the greatest sources of teaching about worship, we read this refrain that says, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So God is worthy of our worship. This is a purpose also for which we are called as human beings. First uh, Peter uh, chapter 2 says, You are a chosen, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging, belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see, we are called for the purpose of praising God, of worshiping God. This is one of the job descriptions of a Christian, is that we worship God him. We should declare that God is worthy, that he is worth more than anything else that could be put together. But does this sound like the worship that we talk about? Does this sound like the, the way that we describe worship? You see, as I listen to Christians of all walks talk about Christianity and worship, it seems that we make worship more about me. It's more about what I get out of it. It's more about what I like. I mean, you hear things like, oh man, I got so much out of that today, man. I got so much out of that worship. You hear, I, I didn't feel it. I didn't receive it. 
you hear I benefit, you hear I get out of hell, I get an eternal eternal reward, I love to worship, it makes me feel good. I love God's forgiveness and grace. I don't feel weighed down. I mean, this is the way that we hear people describe worship. It's all about the I. It's all about me. And this attitude of making Christianity and worship all about us, see, when we make worship all about us, we really, we lose sight of what's really, what it's really about. I mean, have you ever met somebody who said, oh, we're just church shopping? Don't, don't raise your hand. Maybe today you're church shopping. <laughs> That's okay. See, I always... <laughs> sometimes a pastor puts his foot in his mouth. Now, when I, when I hear somebody says, well, I'm church shopping, I get this picture of that old nursery school rhyme. You remember, you remember there was Goldilocks and the three bears, and Goldilocks goes, and she tries this, this porridge, and it was too hot. And then she tries this porridge, and it was too cold, and she finds this one, it was just right. Then she tries the beds, and this one's too hard, and this one's too soft, and this one's just right. And, and we do this with church. We go and we say, well, you know, I like this church, and it has this thing, and it makes me feel good. And, and you know, this church, it's too loud. I, you know, I don't like it. It's too loud, and it just doesn't make me feel right. And we, 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 we make church about what we want, about what we like, what we prefer. We form opinions about all of life, and we become comparison, comparison shoppers. And we make most of our decisions this way. I remember when I was a little bit younger, uh, my first car I bought for $50. Um, and I think there was some other things involved in that. But it was a 1984 Volkswagen Rabbit. And I remember after I had that car for about a year, and it was one of those cars where if you drove for more than like 20 minutes at a time, it would overheat. And you'd be stuck on the side of the road until it cooled down. And uh, so I remember I finally had saved up enough money, and I was like, oh, I'm going to go buy a new car. Praise Jesus. And I go down, uh, and I was looking at, um, you know, these are really fancy cars. There was two 1993 Ford Escorts, and I was going to buy one of these two 1993 Ford Escorts. Same year, uh, and I started comparing them. You know, this one is, is red, and this one's green. You know, this one has these options. It's got power, and it's got this, and, and this one doesn't. This one is a five-speed this one was an automatic. Now, as a 17-year-old kid, you know, a five-speed makes you feel like you're driving a race car, right? And so, I mean, I had no clue what was under the engine. I didn't know how many miles they had on it. But I compared what was important to me, and I chose this car because of the very important thing that it was a five-speed. Right? But this is how we make most of our decisions. And as you look around at churches around us, you see, you see what I would consider full-service churches. They're competing for members. They're competing for people to choose to go to that church on the basis of who delivers the most goods, about who delivers the most effective programs and the most winsome manner. And we evaluate churches not based on whether the church is on mission. We evaluate churches not based on whether they teach the Bible as opposed to moralistic therapeutic deism. No, we, we, we base churches on, on whether or not they have a ministry that will keep our whole family busy and engaged. We evaluate whether they have this age-appropriate program or not, or whether they have this program or that program that makes me feel good about ourselves. We begin to evaluate churches just like we go and buy cars. Well, this car has this option and this one doesn't, so I'm going to choose this one because of this. And that is unfortunately the way that we view churches. And, 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 and this is spilled over also into worship. 
When we look at worship, we want to say, well, I have a specific style that makes me feel good, that makes me feel right. And I want to worship in what makes me feel good. And we say the only right way to worship is the way that we prefer, right? I mean, the only right way to worship is the way I like to do it. And so more often or not, this is known as worship wars. And we have, we have contemporary music versus traditional music. And we have my favorite style of worship versus your favorite style of worship. And music so oftentimes becomes a scapegoat for the church. It becomes a scapegoat for the church. But you see, true worship, true worship is different. True worship is unique in that it is not about your preference or mine. True worship is about something else altogether. We need to understand that our Christian lives, your Christian walk, it's not about you. Likewise, worship is not about you. It's not about how it makes you feel. It's not about how you prefer to worship. Worship is not about you, and it's not about me. Worship is first and foremost about God. Yet in our consumeristic society, we've redefined worship. We've redefined worship to fit our preferences. We've redefined worship to be a, a genre of music, to being what feelings it stirs inside of me and how I feel towards God. And we've, dis, we, we, we've redefined what worship really is. Listen to this. No one has ever come to God as a consumer and truly worshiped. You cannot worship God in a consumeristic mannerism. A consumer and a true worship are polar opposites. So what is true worship? I mean, we're going to begin the series on worship. Let's understand what worship is. Let's come to a common understanding of what true worship is. If you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is about in the middle of your Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, I've got an usher in the back. Um, Mike right here has got a great smile. If you put your hand up, Mike would love to give you one of these Bibles. Um, let that be our gift to you. We ask, uh, we ask that you just keep that with you. Um, if you have one of these Bibles, I'm going to be on page um, 485. We're going to be on Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be able to look today at Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to come to an understanding of what true worship is. We're going to look at what defines a true worshiper. This is going to be the beginning to our worship series. Today, we're going to look at what true worship is. Next week, we're going to look and study barriers to worship. And two weeks from today, we're going to have a, a message on postures of worship. And then we're going to finish the worship series off with a, a sermon called The Life of Worship. So Isaiah chapter 6 is our text today. I'm going to read the first uh, seven, seven verses. You can go ahead and read with me. Isaiah 6. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away 
your sin is atoned for. This is God's words for us today. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we're able to be in a place that we can open up your word and have your word speak to us. I thank you that we are a a, a church that is going to be serious about what your word says. That we don't just come and listen to the pastor give his opinions, but we come and we have your word teach us. And Lord, I pray that you would open our minds today to understand what it is you're trying to teach us. That we would understand what true worship is. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to put the distractions out of our mind and focus on who you are today. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you for filling this place with your spirit. We ask this in your name. Amen. So as I said, we're going to look at this text, and we're going to see three things that define what true worship really is. But before we do that, let's give a little background into this text and where we are in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah was a prophet of Israel who was located primarily in the southern kingdom uh, called Judah. And this specific chapter, Isaiah chapter 6, uh, occurred about, around 740 B.C. Isaiah had served as prophet under the reign of four different kings of Judah. He served under Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. And, and, and verse 1 says that this vision that we just read about occurred at the, about the time of Uzziah's death. Now, King Uzziah is an interesting character. He is described in another spot in the Bible in Second Chronicles. He's described as a just ruler. Under his reign as king, there had been a great time of prosperity and in Judah, as well as there was a great time of expanding of their territory. And as a king, there was blessing to his time as being king under his reign. Yet in spite of Isaiah being a just ruler, Second Chronicles also describes how his fame spread far and wide, and how even after God had done so much for him during his reign as king, he grew proud. And pride led him to make some corrupt decisions. In his pride, he entered into the temple of God and attempted to play the role of a priest and burn an incense offering to God. This may not seem like a big thing to you, this king going into the the, the temple and burning this, this incense. It may not seem like a big thing to you, but this was clearly forbidden in those days. The temple was God's holy place, and God had set the standard that only the Levite priests could perform this type of work. This was a deliberate act of disrespect to God's holiness. His pride had blinded him. King Uzziah's pride had blinded him. God had given Uzziah incredible political authority and and, and incredible political success. But his pride led him to desire spiritual authority as well that wasn't for his to take. And so his divine punishment on Uzziah's sin, leprosy, which is a nasty skin disease, broke out all over his face. And the king, and he remained in leprosy until the time of his death. And in fact, because of his leprosy and the people's concern of it spreading, kind of like you get a cold, he wasn't buried in the royal tombs as other kings would have been buried. He actually was buried in an empty field with a tombstead with a tombstone that read this. Here are, here are brought the bones of Uzziah, king of Judah, not to be opened. His life didn't end very well. And isn't it ironic that the very thing that Isaiah was being punished for, which was improper worship of God, that's why he was being... Isn't it funny how, how the very thing that he was being punished for, worship, is the same thing that Isaiah is speaking about in this passage. Isaiah is giving us a vision of what true worship is. But instead of making improper worship, Isaiah is painting the picture 
of what true worship is. So number one for us this morning, the first thing that we see about true worship that we find in this passage is that true worship will see God in all of his majesty. The core of our worship is seeing God for who he truly is. In view of God's divine majesty, notice that there are two things that, 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 that Isaiah describes as seeing about God. First, he says that, that God was sitting on a throne and that the train of his robe filled the entire temple. This speaks to God's royalty and his majesty. The people of Israel, they were longing for God to work on their behalf. They were longing for God to show up and to work on their behalf. They wanted God in their lives. They wanted God to show up and to lead. And here, Isaiah sees God doing exactly that. He's sitting on the throne as the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's on the throne as the king of their lives. And he's involved and working on their behalf. See, do you know God is king? Do you know God as the king of your life? Have you experienced his divine character orchestrating the details of your life to draw yourself to him? See, we all have the same sentiment of Israel. We long, we desire God to work on our behalf. We want God to work in our lives. We want God to show up and, and do amazing things within, within our midst. And sometimes when things don't go as we desire or things don't happen the way that we wanted them to, the tendency is to get disgruntled and angry because God didn't show up and God didn't do what he was supposed to do. God didn't do what we wanted him to do. So we become angry and bitter towards God. But you see, if we stop for a minute and we see him sitting on the throne as the king, not as a genie in a bottle, but as king, sometimes the king makes decisions that aren't popular. Sometimes the king makes decisions that result in trials and difficulty in our lives, not to punish us, but because he's looking at the greater picture. He's looking at the greater picture of the entire kingdom, and he knows that, 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 that allowing this in your life is going to affect the kingdom. He sees how the trials will affect the future. He's not absent. He's not cold-hearted. He's the king sitting on the throne, attempting to leave, lead our lives to better his kingdom. The second thing we saw in verse 1 is it said that God was high and lifted up. Isaiah saw God high and lifted up. This speaks to God's divine nature, that he is above time and space and nature. God, in attempting to describe himself to Moses, he said, Moses, tell the people, I am, I am that I am. See, God is saying in that statement to Moses, God is saying that he cannot be equated to anything on the earth. He's greater than anything on the earth. He is self-existent. He is self-determined, self-contained, self-defined. He gives meaning and existence to all other things that are created. God holds all things together. He sustains the principle of life in all things that are living. And this is our God, high and lifted up. It is impossible for us to grasp just how great he is. Is that the God that you know? High and lifted up? We tend to attempt to compare God to the things of this world. You know, maybe we look at an earthly king or dictator or a father and we try to compare God to that. He's so much greater than that. It's unfathomable for us to truly understand God's perfection and how great he truly is. Seeing God in his divine majesty is so important for us today because so many people, and this includes some of us in here, we have an improper view of God. We only see God in certain characteristics. 
And we create this idea in our mind of what God should be like. We create in our mind that, man, God should be like this. And, and, and if I were God, this is the way that God would be. And so we make a little box and we try and cram God into our little box. And we try and, and, and keep him in there. But that's not God. God is high and lifted up. He is greater than we could ever imagine. This past week as a family, we slept outside on the big trampoline. Every night I put my kids to bed. They say, Dad, can we sleep on the trampoline tonight? And I'm like, no, I'm old and my back's going to hurt tomorrow. But finally, there was a warm night this week. And I said, all right, let's go sleep outside on the trampoline. And after all the kids went to bed, one of the things I love to do is just look up at the skies. You look up at the stars. Now, we live in, we live in the city. And uh, so because of the city lights, you don't see as many of stars as really are out there. We just see this small glimpse uh, 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 of the heavens. And I'm amazed by it. I'm amazed at thinking of what we can see and what's out there. See, that's the way that we view God. We only see a small glimpse of who he is. He is greater and un- more unfathomable than we can even imagine. He is greater than we can picture, than we can understand in our minds. That is the God who's high and lifted up. He's not this God that we try and cram into our box to say, man, this is my little God and he's, he, he's good and happy. No, God is greater than we can ever imagine, more than we can put our minds around. And Isaiah, as he's coming to, and, and he sees this vision of God, he sees him high and lift him up. He's saying, man, he is greater than we can imagine. I can't even describe all that he is other than the fact that he is high and he is lifted up. So true worship means that we see God in all of his majesty. But number two for us this morning is true worship is that we would see God in all of his holiness. That we'd see God in all of his Look at verse 2 with me. Verse 2, we read about the seraphim. The seraphim are, are fiery, fiery angelic beings. It describes them as having six wings, two that were covering their face, two that were covering their feet, and two that they were flying with. And so as I read this, I thought, man, having six wings really gives the appearance of power. I mean, having uh, an animal, a creature with six wings, you think, man, that's a pretty powerful creature right there. When I think if I had six arms, I'd be pretty powerful. I'd walk into a boxing match and I'd have pretty much confidence that I knew how the fight was going to turn out. And so you see these creatures with six wings. You say, man, they're pretty powerful. But notice, (laughs) notice these angelic beings are powerful, but they're covering their heads and they're covering their feet. They're covering their heads and covering their feet in the presence of God. Here's what I believe. These seraphim uh, flying before God, high and lifted up, sitting on his throne. In the presence of God, they're covering their heads and their feet in humility. Realizing we're before God. We're seeing him for who he is, as high and lifted up. They're humbling themselves before God. This would be similar to our posture of kneeling before a king or royalty in order to show honor and humility. And notice what the seraphim are singing in verse 3. They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Notice that they're singing, holy, holy, holy. You don't hear the angels singing, awesome, 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 or, or loving, 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 or wrath, 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 or, or mercy, mercy, mercy. No, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the only attribute of God that we ever find in Scripture that is used like this in triplicate. The 
primary meaning of the word holy is to be separate. It comes from an ancient word that meant to, to, to cut or to separate. Perhaps even more accurate would be a phrase, a cut above something. When we find a garment or a piece of uh, furniture or something that we think is outstanding that has superior excellence, we would say, we would use the expression that it's a cut above the rest. Your diamond ring, a beautiful diamond ring, the reason you chose it is because it's a cut above the rest. See, when the Bible calls God holy, it means that primarily that God is, is transcendently separate. He is far above and beyond us, that he seems totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way. The same basic meaning is used for the word holy when it is applied to earthly things. You see, God's holiness is revealed in every single one of his attributes. And every action and everything he decrees and every contact he has with his creation, whether in mercy or in judgment, his holiness is manifest in all that he does. God has no degree of holiness. There's no rating system for how holy God is. His holiness is absolute. And when it comes to worship, we must worship God for holy, who he truly is. And first and foremost, we must see God as being holy, as being separate, as being distinct from us. So far, Isaiah has taught us that true worship means that we see God in all of his divine majesty. And that true worship means that we see God in all of his holiness. But there's one more thing about true worship that we learn from this text. Number three for us is true worship sees ourselves in our depravity. True worship sees ourselves in our depravity. Isaiah has seen this amazing vision. He sees God high and lifted up and sitting on the throne. And the train of his robe completely filling the temple. He's seen these, these, these amazing angelic beings with six wings covering themselves and humbling themselves before God, singing, holy, holy, holy. Verse 4 says that the foundations of the earth shook. And what is Isaiah's response? Verse 5 is Isaiah's response. And he says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response to seeing God for as majestic and as holy as he truly is, is personal devastation. His conscience is broken by the sight of his creator's holiness. This is more than just the weight of guilt alone. This is a devastating realization that the moral life that Isaiah lives before God is offensive to God's holiness. Isaiah's best attempts to be righteous and to be holy, <laughs> they are offensive to God's holiness. I mean, put yourselves in Isaiah's shoes. Put yourselves in Isaiah's shoes. And I picture Isaiah thinking this. Man, I thought I was doing okay. I imagine that my religious world where I was a faithful servant, servant, that my religious duties were acceptable to God. I go to church, I give offerings, I serve. Man, isn't that acceptable to God? But now as I've looked over the brink, I have caught a glimpse of the infinite gulf between God's holiness and my own deformity. It says, my lips are impure to utter the words that the angels are even uttering. 
Because if I were to say them, it would be like pouring spring water out of a trash can. This is a reality of Isaiah when he sees God for who he is. This is a result of God seeing for who he is. R.C. Sproul's said this. He said, men are never truly or duly touched and impressed with conviction and there's of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. You see, in true worship, when we see God for who he truly is, more majestic and more holy than we could ever imagine, when we see God in his full awesomeness, we aren't left, in, we aren't left thinking, man, that was good. Man, I feel so happy, happy, happy. I've really got something out of that service today. I really feel good about myself now. No, when we see God for who he truly is, we're left with a proper view of ourselves. We see our own depravity. We see ourselves in our sin. No longer do we say, oh, well, I'm, I'm a pretty religious guy. You know, I'm a pretty good person. I'm better than a lot of people. <laughs> it's okay that I do, and I sin every once in a while. It's okay that I lie to cover my tracks. It's okay that I treat people like this, you know, because I'm overall, I'm a pretty good person. I'm better than a lot of people. See, no longer when we see God for who he is, no longer can we stand before God like that. When we see God and all of his majesty and all of his holiness and all of his power and all of his love and all of his faithfulness and all of his wisdom and all of his supremacy and all of his wrath and all of his goodness and all of his mercy, when we see God and all of his sovereignty and all of his majesty, when we see God for who he truly is, we realize how small we truly are. And we realize how broken we are. And we realize how depraved we really are. In the light of Isaiah's confession of his depravity, he says, woe is me. Look at God's response in verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his, in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. God's grace and his love is extended to us at the moment that we see him for who he is, and we see us for who we really are. When we see him as majestic and holy, when we see ourselves as sinful and broken, his love, his grace, and his mercy, and his forgiveness is extended right there for us. See, true worship sees God in all of his majesty. It sees God in all of his holiness. True worship sees ourselves in our depravity. And to summarize what true worship is, it is a response to those things. It is a response to who God is and to what he has done. Yes, we are broken, unclean, sinful people. But God loved every one of us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. He sent his only son to the cross to exchange our sinfulness, our depravity, for his perfection. So we can be made holy, not by our deeds, but through his righteousness. We can have a relationship with this majestic and holy God because he sent his son to die for us. This is what God has done. And true worship is how we respond to who he is and what he has done for every one of us. That is what true worship is. Worship isn't the style of music that we sing. 
It's not the coolness of a church service. Worship isn't about us. Worship is about who God is and how we respond to what he has done for us. As the worship team comes forward, I'm going to give us an opportunity this morning to respond to who God is and to what he has done for us. This has been a heavy text this morning. And I stand up here feeling like Isaiah. feel like, man, I'm a man of unclean lips. And what God asks of us is that we surrender. That we surrender ourselves and our wills and we receive him as our Savior. If you are here today and you've not received Jesus as your Savior, if you have not decided to put your faith in Jesus Christ and become a Christian yet, can I urge you today to place your faith in him alone, to receive him as your Savior? In order to experience true worship, it requires a relationship with God and that is only available through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today, would you receive Christ as your Savior? If you're already a Christian, can I urge you to experience true worship today? Can I urge you to surrender? Can I urge you to see, to be reminded of how majestic and holy he truly is? Can I urge you to be reminded of how depraved we truly are? I don't know where you are today, but wherever you are, would you respond to who God is and what he has done and worship him with your whole life? We're going to take the next several minutes and offer you a time to worship. You may need to take this time to kneel down and to cry out to God in prayer. You may just need to close your eyes and sing and praise God for who he is and what he has done. You may want to come up in the next couple minutes and have me or one of our counselors pray for you or talk with you about where you're at. We'll be up on the front row. We'd love to have that opportunity to pray with you. But if you aren't worshiping this morning, if you aren't worshiping God, it's not my fault. It's not the worship leader's fault. It's not the worship team's fault if you're not worshiping God. You are the director of your own worship. It is how we respond to who he is and what he has done. So I invite you now to worship with me. Let's pray.